How are y'all doing tonight? I will say it's, it's slightly cooler in the service than it was the last one, so that's good. Um, we're excited, excited to be with you guys, excited to get into God's word. I believe he's got a special word for us tonight. So if you guys are new with us, we are in a summer sermon series in the Psalms. Summer sermon series in the Psalms, all right? So that's, that's the one that'll be difficult to forget. Um, and particularly focusing on uh, Psalms by David. And we know that David uh, is responsible for about half the Psalms that we have in the Bible. And the really cool thing, the unique thing about the Psalms is they give us a unique perspective on our relationship with God. Um, there are a few places where we see just the absolute unhindered, unfiltered emotion of God's people towards the Lord like we see in the Psalms. So we're going to look at that. Some of our, our, uh, our Psalms, our, our laments, they're categorized differently. This Psalm that we're going to look at tonight is a lament. Um, but there are other kinds of Psalms as well. We have wisdom Psalms, Thanksgiving Psalms. Um, and so they're categorized differently in terms of the type of emotion that we are displaying towards God. Um, but, but we have them here to show us the, the relational nature of our relationship with the maker of this, of this universe. Um, it's, it's what separates our faith from just a normal kind of religion, right? This isn't just a list of do's and don'ts that we're, that we're doing here. Um, we're not just performing a list of rituals um, so that we can be set. Instead, it's a complex day-by-day relationship. And with all good relationships, communication is what's really key. The Bible isn't a guidebook on how to live your best life. It is the very word of God to us and for us. So we hear from our Lord and our God through these words. But prayer is how we communicate back to God. And in the Psalms, that's what we see here. These are, each Psalm is a prayer it's, a, it's an attempt to communicate and engage with the living, majestic ruler of this universe that we learned about in, ver- in uh, Psalm 8 just last week when Jason preached. And we see in the Bible this very consistent story of God's pursuit of us in that relationship. It's an intimate one, too, and it's consistent, and it's all the way through all 66 books. But in the Psalms, we get that unique sense of what our communication back to the Lord looks like. If you're wondering how to pray to God, how to give voice to the things that you're feeling deep down inside, then you should look to the Psalms. And they're filled with all kinds of emotions. So we've covered Psalm 3, we've covered Psalm 8. Tonight we are in Psalm 13. So if you will turn there with me, we're going to read Psalm 13. It's also in your worship guide. You can find it there. Let's read together. Or I'll read it. You don't have to read it. It's not bold, so you don't have to read it. Um, All right. Here's the passage. How long, O Lord, to the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Consider 
and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? Father, in this moment, we thank you for your word. And God, we pray that this living and active word would speak to our hearts. God, our hearts and our souls each are unique and have gone through different trials and hard times and have been in dark places. And God, we need you to speak directly to us in those places. So God, would you please take these words that I've prepared? God, would they just be your words tonight? My words can blow away. We thank you for your spirit that is with us tonight, and we thank you and praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, we're going to jump into this psalm. Um, We've got three sections. I've actually got some alliteration for you guys tonight, so if you're a note taker, it's going to be great. I've done, uh, this is my sixth sermon here at Grace. I've never done alliteration before, so I'm I'm hoping this will help a little bit better with the note taking, uh, but we'll see. And I want to start with just, um, I just want to start with a word of thanks to Jeremy and to the worship team. You saw a couple of them, Katie and, and Carrie, uh, tonight, and they do such a great job, and, and Jeremy in particular. None of the songs that we are singing tonight were randomly picked, okay? They weren't like, let's just kind of put a piece, bunch of pieces of paper, write some songs on them, and pick them out of a hat, and that's what we'll sing. They're very intentional songs that, that lead us through this path of worship to God, that connect to the scripture, that connect to the opening scripture that we read, to the prayers, to the confession. And songs are really powerful, meaningful things in our lives. They can do a lot of things, but primarily I'm going to generalize and say that that songs uh, and music can do two really specific things in our lives. One, songs can help guide your emotions. Okay, so whether you're a Spotify person or a Pandora person or an Apple Music person or some other streaming service, if you're like me, you have playlists for everything, right? And, and the playlists are titled whatever it is that you're wanting to feel like or prepare yourself for to like set the stage for your heart to experience this thing. So I have a, I have a beach playlist. Tomorrow we're going to the beach. I'm already hearing Bob Marley tunes in my in my ears, okay? I, I, I will listen to this playlist on the way down. Christina will ask me to change it. I'll change it for like one song and then I'll be right back to the beach playlist, okay? That's how that'll go. We have workout playlists, right, to get you pumped up, right? If you're looking to, to you know, max out on a new weight, whatever it is, like get a new PR. Um, you know, for us, it's like 90s hip hop, right? Might be might be the playlist for our workout music. Whatever you guys, whatever you guys like. Getting work done. If we want to be productive, we have a playlist for that. 
I made a playlist for Psalm 13. I, I did. Um, and, and just to get my heart and my mind right, to wrap my mind around this passage and what it's telling us. In these instances, the song is intended, intended to, to connect us, right, to this experience, this thing that we're going for. They're ma- basically manufacturing emotions, right? And the best example, the, the one that would be the easiest, would be, you know, think about going to a sporting event. Every time you walk into that stadium for that sporting event, you're going to hear loud, pump-you-up kind of music, right? And that's there to get you ramped up and ready for the game. It's there for the players to make sure they're going to compete at their best to get their energy up. How weird would it be if you walked into the stadium and it's like this slow ballad playing? It would seem so weird and out of place, right? That's the best example I can give you of kind of music and how we use music in our lives to help us connect with our emotions. It can also work the opposite way, right? So if you are feeling a certain way, sometimes you need to find a song that can give you a voice to the way that you're feeling. There are times where I'll be on Spotify and I'll just keep clicking next, next, next randomly, just trying to find the song that connects me to the way that I'm, that I'm feeling inside. And, and that's, that's what the Psalms can do for us. They can help us connect to a way that we're feeling or they can prepare us for a worshipful experience. And in Psalm 13, I had a song that I picked for my, my Psalm 13 playlist. And it's, you may have heard of it before. Um, it's called Reason to Sing. And it's by all sons and daughters. And I'm going to read some of the lyrics to you. I'm not going to sing them, but I'm going to read them to you guys. Just to give you an idea of how this this song for me connected to Psalm 13, and then we're just going to dive right in. When the pieces seem too shattered to gather off the floor, and all that seems to matter is that I don't feel you anymore. I need a reason to sing. When I'm overcome by fear, and I hate everything I know, If this waiting lasts forever, I'm afraid I might let go. I need a reason to sing. I think that fits this psalm perfectly. So with God's mercy and grace, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we're together going to walk through Psalm 13 and arrive at what I hope is a very good reason to sing. So let's get into it. The background... um, on this text. There's no real historical context given. I know last week and the week before, actually, both weeks, there was at least a little bit of context. All we really know is that this is a Psalm of David. And that's actually beautiful in a way, because here's what we know about David. David had some incredible suffering and pain in his life. If we read through First and Second Samuel, we see this. We know David made some pretty big mistakes. We also know that David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. So even though our lives may not look like David's, just in these three things, I think we can see there's a lot that we can relate to about David. So that when we look at Psalm 13, we can place ourselves in this text. We can let the psalm serve as a mirror of our own life and make our life the context. So, back to the alliteration. 
You guys ready? It's exciting. It's three P words, okay? We're going to go with David's problem, okay, first. Then we're going to look into David's plea, his request of God, his plea. And then third, we're going to focus on God's promise to David and to us. And then at the very end, we're going to focus on one really big takeaway. So let's dive right in. The first is the problem. Look at verses one and two. We're just going to break these down section by section. Three main sections, right? First, David's problem. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the days? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Did you see that? Four different times. David says, how long? Questions are framed a little bit differently, different subject matter each time, but it's always, how long, O Lord? That's the title of the psalm. It's not just that David is, is suffering and that he's in darkness, he's in a dark place. It's also that he does not see any end to it. He's lost in it. He can't find God in it, so much so that he feels like God has forgotten him and, and hidden from him. I wonder if anybody can identify that, to that feeling. Forever is a long time. And the question that has been scaring me as I've been preparing for this this whole time is how long? Because I thought of many of you that are sitting here tonight that are enduring pain and suffering. And you guys are wondering, how long, oh Lord? And that's a difficult road, especially when you don't see any end in sight. And the reality of this life is that we are living in a world that is full of pain and suffering everywhere we turn. So we are assured suffering and to complicate it, our flesh is basically a magnet for suffering. You could plan your whole life. I do this. I plan my whole life around avoiding the pain and suffering of this world. But the reality is it would do us no good. It even at times can make the sting even that much worse. And so we plead with God in our frustration, in our exhaustion, how long, Lord? Here's what you need to know. Here's the first takeaway with David's problem that I want to address. God can handle your questions. So ask. Whatever you're feeling, ask your questions to God. If you need an example, look no further than the book of Job. If you're not familiar with the book of Job in the Old Testament, this is a major conversation between God and Job, okay? And a little bit about Job. He was, a, he was a man truly blessed by God and walking with him. And Satan saw that, and he sought to destroy Job. And Satan's premise was, Job loves you because of your blessing. He loves you because of what you can give Job. He doesn't really love you. And God said, go for it. 
And so Satan literally took everything from Job. His family, his wealth, his health. And on top of that, Job's friends come to his aid, and it turns out they're terrible comforters. They interpret his loss as being caused by some grievous sin that Job committed. And so instead of just comforting him and being with him in his anguish, they try to correct him. They try to find some grievous sin in Job's life. Throughout this horrible ordeal, Job pleads with God. He questions God. He is frustrated with God. He feels like God has forgotten him, has hid his face from him. Sound familiar? It's just like what we see here from David in Psalm 13. And what happens? Two main things happen at the end of this story for Job. The first is that God really gives Job the business. Like if you've ever wanted to know what trash talking from the Lord of the universe might sound like, I give you Job 38. Um, and when, I'm not going to read the whole passage to you, but I encourage you, at, you know, if you need some fun reading afterwards, just go check this out. But just a few verses in, in chapter 38 of Job, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And it goes on verse after verse of God putting Job in his place and introducing great humility into his life, which is very important for all of us. But then second, the other thing that happens might be less expected, come by surprise to you all. Back to to Job's so-called friends, God addresses them as well. He says, if you want to be right before God, you better have Job pray for you. He says, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So here's God after all the back and forth between Job and God and all the frustration and everything and all the probably not right things that Job said about God. And yet at the very end, what does God say? That what Job has said is right. So what is happening here? Why is Job considered right? It's because after all the things that Satan put Job through, he never turned away from God. He was experiencing so much struggle in his life, but he never turned from God. He expressed frustration. He expressed anger. He expressed suffering to the Lord, but he directed those feelings to God in prayer. So because Job said those things in prayer to God, they weren't sin. You can give whatever questions to God that you want in prayer. Ask him your questions. He's big enough. He can handle it. It reminds me of 1 Peter. Obviously, we've been going, we went through Peter a few months ago, and um, this passage stood out to me. I want to read it to you all very quickly. It's 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 9. And this reminds me of, of Job. 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Job's faith, just like in this text in 1 Peter, was proven to be genuine. His love for God was genuine. That doesn't mean he wasn't in complete anguish. In fact, we know that he was. He literally spent chapters coming at God with the most difficult questions you can imagine. But God could handle his questions. And he can handle yours and mine too. All right, that's, that's the takeaway for, for the problem, David's problem. Now let's, let's look at David's plea in verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David makes his plea. He says, consider and answer me. So you notice that he's still fixated on his grief, feeling the absence of God. But primarily, it's because he can't see God. The problem here is that, that David is in darkness. And when it's dark, you can't see anything. You might as well be blind in, in the presence of complete darkness. Have you ever been in complete darkness? You can't even see your hand right in front of you. That's the kind of darkness that we're talking about here. And so what does David ask for? Verse 3, light up my eyes. David uses a metaphor here. All he sees is darkness and enemies around him. And he is truly fearful that the trials that he's experiencing could lead to his death. And so David is pleading for God to give him vision, help him to see, light up his eyes. So that what? He can see what might be coming. So that he knows how to maybe get out of this so he can see the end. More importantly, so that he can see that God is with him and for him, regardless of what may come. Quick story about me. My vision is, uh, is basically terrible and has been since I was five or six years old, probably in my entire life. But it wasn't discovered until I was five or six year old, years old that I had terrible vision. And the funny thing about terrible vision is you don't really know you have terrible vision until it gets corrected. And you're like, wow, this is what it looks like to see. But I hated going to the eye doctor. And because I had such poor vision at such an early age, we went to the eye doctor frequently. Here's why I hated going to the eye doctor. One, I was going to have to wear glasses. And in the early 90s, it wasn't cool to wear glasses. They didn't have some very cool-looking glasses back then, OK? Um, options were very limited. And I did not feel like I looked very cool in glasses. Um, my family, their favorite ornament is still this terrible picture of kindergarten with me with glasses on. I look like such. I'm not going to call myself any bad names, but still, it was bad. That's the first reason why I hated it. The second reason, this is embarrassing. Like, does anybody like the eye exam? I don't. 
I can't stand it. The eye exam is the most threatening thing to me I've ever experienced in my life. I'm sitting down, and the doctor knows I can't see. He already did all the little flippy things, right? He knows I can't see. And he's like, can you read these letters? And they're so tiny, they look like ants. And like for me, especially with my right eye, which is especially terrible, like you had to throw up the big billboard E for me to be able to pass that test. And so a competitive person like me, I, I, I felt like I failed the test. I failed my, my poor parents who are sitting there wondering what's wrong with me. Um, I hated, hated the eye test. But here's what I've learned about sight, which is really interesting. All of your eye problems, if you wear glasses or if you've had you know, corrective surgery, whatever it is, all of your eye problems actually result in um, your eye misinterpreting the light as it's coming through your eye. So whether you're nearsighted or farsighted or you have an astigmatism, whatever it is, it's about your eye receiving, interpreting light. And here David is in verse 3 saying, God, I need you to light up my eyes so that I can see. I can't see you, God. Where are you? I don't know what's going on. I need you. Give me vision. Light up my eyes. This is why I love the song we sang earlier, the Till These Tears Are Gone. <clears throat> more, more lyrics for you guys. Shine your light brighter than the dawn. Send your joy, illuminate the darkness. And then the chorus, I'll fix my eyes on eternity above, where every lie is uncovered by your love. That's huge. That's what David's asking for here. He's, his plea is that God would enlighten his eyes so that he could focus on eternity above, so that he could see the bigger picture of what's going on here, that there's purpose in it, that God still loves him, that God is with him. One more on, on vision and light. The book of Revelation gives us some of the most interesting imagery. And part of that imagery is when um, John is revealing to us what the new heavens and new earth look like. And in Revelation 21, 23, here's what he says about light. I think this is so cool. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. Did you catch that? There's no need for sun or moon. I mean, these are the things that have provided natural light that we've been used to since the beginning of time. And yet there is no need for them in heaven We'll have the glory of God for that. We won't have any more darkness or sin or pain or struggle or death. We'll have a lamp that is the lamb, is Jesus. I find that really cool. All right, so the plea is that God would give us vision, David's problem. We can... We can question, we can, we can pose our questions to God, and then we have the promise. And the promise of God in verses 5 and 6 are this. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So here's my question. 
Does something change about David's situation between verses 1 through 4 and verses 5 and 6? Because it sure sounds like it, right? He was saying, how long, O Lord? Answer me, O Lord. I can't see you, Lord. And now he is trusting in his steadfast love. So did God answer his prayer? Are David's enemies gone? Or is David confessing that in the midst of his enemies and his pain and suffering, that the steadfast love of God is what he needs most, and it has been there all along? Our pastor is so good to remind us that so often what we struggle with is not that God has broken his promise to us, is that we forget what the promise is. The promise is steadfast love. The promise is for God to always love us. Never forget us. The promise is salvation for the believer. Why is this so important right now? Well, when you can't see, when you're blinded by darkness, you are in complete need of someone else, right? There's not a more vulnerable feeling than when there's complete darkness around you. And David is in that. He needs somebody he can trust. And David turns to the most trustworthy being that this world has ever known, the one who promises steadfast love, salvation. He's the only one that can offer such things. So here it is, the promise. This is our reason. Love and salvation are good reasons to sing. One final takeaway I want to leave you guys with. This is the moment in the sermon where every pastor, every preacher says, if you don't hear anything else I said, hear this. Okay, this is my moment. Hear this. Trust. Trust is the point of this whole psalm. That's the question. Do you trust God? Do you trust him with your questions? Do you trust him with your suffering and your pain? This isn't a story about how God took away all your pain and suffering. And it isn't a story of how he helped you overcome all your enemies. It's a story of how you can trust him even in the dark places, especially in the dark places, because that is when you need him most. And guess what? He's promised to be there. Two points about trust just real quickly. David displays, did you know, David displays trust throughout this psalm. So we we talked about this problem that he has, and he keeps asking these questions of how long, O Lord, but he's still directing his attention to the Lord, just like Job addressed his attention to the Lord. From the first verse to the last, even his cries exhibit trust in God. I am a father. (laughs) I didn't expect them to be here. Um, I'm glad they're here, though. I thought you guys would be in the back. Anyway, I'm the father of three amazing girls. Two of them are sitting right here. And sometimes, sometimes I grow weary of their cries. Which I realize makes me sound like a terrible parent, especially when they're sitting right here. (laughs) 
but it really can feel like a lot sometimes, okay? All the parents, can I get an amen, something? Okay, no encouragement. I kid you not, between the hours of 8.30 this morning and 10.30 this morning, so just two measly hours, just in two hours, here were the things I heard crying out from my children. It isn't fair. My throat hurts. The tent is broken. She's wearing my shirt. They won't play with me. I have a white dot on my finger. I don't know what that is. Still haven't figured that one out. My toy fell down the drain. What? What do you mean your toy fell down the drain? What is that? I'm like, I'm like screaming at them. I'm trying to prepare for a sermon. Can't deal with your toy down the drain. What am I supposed to do with that? But they gave me a good sermon illustration, so I'm thankful. No, seriously. I'm thankful that they come to me. You know why? I can't imagine what would it feel like to worry that they didn't trust me. What if my kids didn't trust me? What if they didn't feel like they could come to me with their cries? I couldn't bear that. And God is an infinitely better father than I am. The concern is not that you would cry out to God or what you would cry out to God. The concern is that you wouldn't cry out to God. Which leads me to my point number two about trust. David's faith and trust is relational. This, this book is not some unemotional religious writing. In fact, it's the complete opposite. It's filled with emotion of all kind. And David is making it clear here that he is hurting. But, that's what we see in verse 5, but it's in God's steadfast, committed to us love that we can trust that he cares for us, that he's with us, especially in the dark times. Would you realize tonight that you have access to the creator and sustainer of this universe, that he loves you, that he can handle your difficult questions. I promise you he can. But don't be silent. The worst thing you could do is turn away. Don't give up hope. You might say to me, BK, how do you know? How do you know I can trust God? I would point you to Mark 14. Jesus Christ as he's preparing for his crucifixion, goes to a garden and brings his disciples with him. And it says that that he was greatly distressed and troubled. He said to his disciples that his soul was very sorrowful, even to death. 
And here's what, here's what his plea was. Goodness gracious. Here's, here's Jesus' plea. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The preceding chapters in Mark tell us of the pain and suffering that Jesus would go through, the darkness that he would encounter, to the point where he would cry out on a cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's how we know God's promise of steadfast love and salvation are true. That God would forsake his own perfect son to make sure that we who are in Christ Jesus are never forgotten and never alone. That the sacrificial death of our Savior and his resurrection from the dead secured our salvation and his ever-ending love for us. And that is what we celebrate at this table. God, we thank you that even though you are the God of this universe and control everything, that you care for us. And God, we pray, especially in these dark places, God, that you would shine your light and that you would give us vision, God, that we could see you, we'd see your love for us, that we could see that you are there with us in our suffering, in our pain. God, that even at moments you are carrying us through those things. God, I pray that we would trust you tonight. In your son's name, amen.